0: central thank you for being here with us and for those of you that are watching at home the title of today's sermon will be jesus feeds the Five Thousand, and we're following jesus through the book of luke and we're going to look at luke chapter 9 verse 10 through 17 and it begins in verse 10 On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up at heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of the pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, would you have mercy upon us? Would you grant us the faith to believe and trust in your hands the little that we can give, knowing that it is not what we give that matters but to the one who takes what we give and so would you be glorified today in Jesus name Amen Beloved church throughout this year we have been looking to follow Jesus and watch and see Christ and to see the beauty and the power of his life through the book of Luke in the hopes that as we see would transform us to do the same We have because we have been first loved by him. The text today is the one miracle apart from the resurrection recounted in all of the Gospels. Let that sink in. The only other next to the resurrection. That tells us It was a memorable and powerful to all the witnesses. The four Gospels combined actually show a more beautiful and complete picture of what occurred and the significance of why this was burned into the minds of all the writers of the Synoptic Gospels. That's why you'll notice me referencing a lot of the other Gospels for the details. It paints a more clear picture when all four are combined. Our text begins with a phrase that would let us know that it was a continuation from something that happened before. In verse 10, it says, on their return. Have you ever thought, what does that mean? Return from where? So verse 1 through 6 tells us that Jesus had sent the disciples out paired with all authority to proclaim the kingdom and for them to heal the sick. I want to highlight an important detail of the contextual story before the text because this will become important later in the points. Jesus commands the disciples as they were leaving two by two, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't bring not even two coats, tunics. So basically, he's asking them to trust that the Lord will provide for their needs. Not shelter, not to think about food, just sent out with the clothes on their back. Think how scary that must have been to not be prepared to go do the work that Jesus does. They returned after preaching the gospel and healing the people of the villages. Can you imagine the excitement that they prayed and people were healed? So they were coming and they were ready to tell Jesus, you weren't there, but we healed people. We preached the gospel and people came to salvation. You didn't do it. We did it. They were excited, but they were also exhausted. Mark 6 tells us this detail that Luke doesn't. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place to rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they didn't even have time or leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Doesn't it sound like 2020? 2020? Isn't it comforting that Jesus cares about our rest and our restoration? After doing ministry and all the work of pouring our hearts and lives, Jesus cares to take us away to a private place to be still and to rest and know that he is God. Ministry and serving is fulfilling, but it is also absolutely exhausting. And especially this year, we are all zoomed out. Yet it's the only way to love our neighbors. Everything is hard. Ministry with the necessity to pivot and also the piling challenges of work. Adjusting with your kids' virtual classrooms and their grades are dipping everywhere. And you're like, what is this F? I thought you did all your homework. And our marriage is all strained because we can't manage any of it. Most of all, it's hard because we feel like we're not doing anything well. We're not parenting well. We're not working well. We're not managing our life well. We're not managing our stress. Everything feels like it's hard. And Mark gives us more details about why the disciples were so exhausted. In verse 33, it says, Now many of them saw them, Jesus and the disciples, going and recognized them And you know what the crowd did? They ran. They didn't want to miss out on Jesus and the disciples and being a part of them. So they ran from all of their towns and got there before Jesus and the disciples. Think of the eagerness. Think of the brokenness. Think of their needs. They were so desperate that they ran. While Jesus and the disciples got in the boat to go to the other side to a desolate place, they ran because their need was so great are these crossfoot people like how did they outrun jesus and the boat but they outran them because it speaks to their sheer desperation for healing and to hear good news aren't we desperate to hear good news in 2020 isn't our heart asking god let me hear good news instead of another bad news The Bible says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' heart broke for them. And so he begins to heal them and share the good news again. So Jesus reengages. The text is Jesus' miraculous of feeding the 5,000, and it comes directly after this context. So we're going to look at three phrases found in the text to give us insight into the personal journey as Jesus' disciples, our own, and what happened to the disciples as they were walking. The first point is this. There is a call to discipleship in the phrase, you give them something to eat. Secondly, there's a call to serve sacrificially in the phrase, no more than five loaves and two fish. And lastly, there's a call to believe in Christ as they all ate and were fully satisfied. So point one, Jesus calls us to discipleship when he says, you give them something to eat. When you hear that emphatic, emphatic command, what would have been your reaction to Jesus? You give them something to eat. Imagine you're looking out and there's 20,000 people You give them something to eat. What would you think? Oh, yeah, I got this. Jesus, chill out. The disciples' response resonated with me and how I would react. John in his Gospels fills the missing details for us. Some of us will respond to Jesus by diagnosing the problem of the command in itself. Philip basically tried to show Jesus why it's not logical. Just a fragment. He says, if everybody just took a piece of bread and bit it and passed it on to the next person, it would cost us 200 denarii. That's eight months' wages. If we calculate $120,000 as a medium salary, that would be $80,000 for this one meal. Who would drop $80,000 for one meal? Is it Jiro Sushi? Is it Michelin Star? No, it's a piece of bread that you bite and pass on. He tried to give a logical solution to why it was impossible. And then Andrew, being the doer, he doesn't go into his mind, but he just goes, all right, let's fix the problem. And he goes out, and he begins to ask everybody, who wants to give up your stuff? Who wants to give food to Jesus? And let's see what happens. And he goes through and goes through and goes through, and basically he gets one donation out of 20,000 people. It's one poor boy's donation, and how do we know that? because the Bible is so detailed, it says it was a barley loaf. Barley was food of the poor. And the commentators would say that it was two dried up fish and five barley loaves. It wasn't a rich person's food, but a poor people's food, the rejected, the marginalized. You hear the crushed spirit of Andrew in his voice, and he says, but what could... He takes the boys' gifts and he goes, what good is five barley loaves and two fish for so many? It would be like somebody offering a vial of the Moderna vaccine to cure COVID around the whole world. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I see the heart behind it. But what good is it going to do to tackle a worldwide problem? Why even offer it? What Andrew was saying was, why are we wasting time trying to feed these people? Look what came up. Five poor man's barley loaves and two fish. So here we draw from John. After Andrew and Philip's basically thoughts about what's going on as disciples, the most frustrating part for me as I was reading all the four synoptic gospels Jesus says he did this to test them. For he himself knew what he was going to do. (laughs) What? Why would Jesus ask them to feed the people if he knew what he was going to do? Why ask? Why command? Why make the disciples who are exhausted from going out and just wanting to sleep, wanting something to eat, why ask them to feed the people? The question seems unfair and discouraging to set them up for the impossible, knowing that they were going to fail. Why? Why set up people who love him and serve him and want to follow him to fail? Jesus discipled his men. Always leading them both to their failures and their successes. I'm going to say that again. Jesus leads us. Jesus leads his disciples to both failures and successes. He takes us to the green pastures and also the valley of shadow of death. He leads us. The context is so important. On their return, return from what? Pouring out, giving, being exhausted of serving. The same men who just spent days before giving everything that they have, did God send them out to get pumped up? To feel like, oh, we can feed 20,000 people. We just healed a bunch of people and we you know, went out and we didn't have shelter. Is that why Jesus sent them out two by two? to get them excited that they can do this. Is that even possible with men to heal a broken body? Is it possible for men to mend the spiritual brokenness of people through preaching of the word? They were exhausted because they tried and gave everything that they had, but why did Jesus send them out? Was it so that they can accomplish feeding the 20,000? No. When they were exhausted from doing their work, when they were tired and hungry, Jesus showed them again, I provided for the Food and the shelter when you were out. I healed the sick and the broken when you went out. And when you came back exhausted from doing that work and believing in me, and your heart was too exhausted to do anything, I took the broken in again. And I fed them, and I healed them, So when he says, you give them something to eat, their work was to have faith in Jesus, not to accomplish the task before them. Just a short time before this instance, they were asked to go to not take bread because God was going to provide. He was teaching them what it looks like to have faith in Christ, not to fix the problem. We always look at ministry as something that in our will and strength we have to fix. But God was teaching them, I heal my people. I provide their bread. I give them shelter. As fishermen, many of the disciples taking the boat, they were sitting by this shore, this town called Bethsaida. Did you know that Bethsaida means the house of fishers? It would bring back memories as they were sitting on the shore as disciples when they were trying to fish, when Jesus called them and he said, hey, have you had any luck with the fish? And they would be like, no, nothing. In all our expertise, we couldn't get any fish. And he goes, why don't you throw it on the other side? And imagine the audacity of Jesus, who's not a fisherman, a carpenter, throw it on the other side. We've been fishing all night. And he they throw it on the other side reluctantly to only see so much fish that they couldn't get on their own. Why? Because they were sitting in the house of fishers, knowing that there were fishermen looking at Jesus, who is the only one who can provide the bread and the fish that the people needed. Their whole discipleship journey was never about them providing for the people according to their wisdom, their strength, and their power. Our faith is not the sum of our personal highs and lows, our giftings, our strength, our knowledge. But the calling is to rest on this truth. He himself knew what he would do. Before you and I can figure this ministry thing out, loving our family, loving the people God has placed in our care, he himself knew what he was going to do. It's not a challenge to you and your ability to take care of ministry. He was making a statement, I know what I'm going to do before I ask you. John 6, 28 says this. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Many of us are thinking, oh, the crazy ministry stuff we have to do. But this is what Jesus answered them with, and this is how he answers us. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What are you being called to? You are being called to the primary work of believing and trusting in Christ. I think many of us have forgotten that, and so we are exhausted because we are trying to feed 20,000 people, and we keep telling Jesus, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. When you get here in your exhaustion and you look out at the sea of the needs and you have nothing to offer except for why you can't accomplish it, Jesus still calls us to serve sacrificially. And the second phrase, no more than five loaves and two fish, what is the action then of those who trust him? If it is not up to us to feed the 20,000, then what's our action? Is it just to believe? Is it just to trust? But there is an action. Here is the irony. Have you looked at where the five loaves and the two fish comes from? It's not in Luke. John tells us it's from a small boy who is, isn't even counted or considered. In the Old Testament days, they only counted men, grown men who can provide, and so the boy wouldn't be counted, women wouldn't be counted. That's why it says feeding of the 5000 when Jesus probably fed 20,000 people. Have you ever asked? I asked this immediately, why didn't anyone else surrender their food? Surrender their food. Most likely, because just like everyone else, we only bring just enough for our family and for ourselves here's the picture of our faith we are all trying our best to take care of our family and sometimes just a few people around us and that's just hard enough in 2020 just taking care of our own people is hard enough with our own strength So to consider going beyond sacrificial giving, as soon as you hear sacrificial giving, you're like, I'm exhausted. I can't give anymore. What's my giving, what's my serving going to do to dent the needs of so many? Only this little boy looked at the Goliath-sized need of the people and offered up what would not matter to the need. What couldn't even make a dent in that need? The boy who is marginalized, the boy who's not counted, he's insignificant, himself insignificant. Why do we know that? He has no name. Three of the four synoptic gospels don't mention him. Only himself discounted and rejected and not counted. Even his gift discounted by one of the apostles. What's this going to do? The contrast here is the disciples and the boy. The disciples exhausted from ministry. The boy following, watching Jesus heal. The men who ate with him, who sat with him, who was provided for, who even got to participate in the miracle. They were exhausted and tired. I feel like this happens to many of us in ministry We become professionals who know what to do, but so therefore we live out God's commandments within our own limitations. When God says, Look at the harvest, it is plenty, we go, This is what I'm capable of. We learn to become realistic with our expectations. We've seen too much. We've been hurt too much. We've disappointed too many people and people have disappointed us. The leaders, the churches, everything around us, it's crushing us and making us feel exhausted. And that's how we've learned to cope with these mountain-sized problems we can't tackle. We're paralyzed from our fear of failure and the impossibility of the mountain before us. You know, the crazy thing is the boy saw the same 20,000 people, but he showed up. He gave sacrificially everything he had. Why show up? Why give when it won't matter? Why not see it as a waste of time and effort? Everyone else probably did. Here's the secret, I think. Because he was probably far more clear than anyone else in that place of his weakness, of what he had to offer, that it would mean nothing. He could do nothing to solve the problem before him. So he would place all that he had in the hands of the one person who could while the rest of us would try to fix it with our own strength. You see, out of the tens of thousands, this little boy got it. It's what we call the faith of a child, the faith of a mustard seed. You see, the gospel writers show us again and again, it's the widows, it's the Gentiles, it's the little children who have faith of a mustard seed, not professional faith. The work is to believe in the one whom God has sent, not to believe that you can accomplish it, not to have faith that can actually move the mountain. It is to believe and trust in the one who can move the mountains. When we think about serving in the church, one of the things that I hear all the time is my gifts and abilities. I can't tackle any of that. Yes, it's true. We can't all be magicians like Director Heidi. This is why I fear for my life when she is on vacation and everyone in the office looks around and goes, who's going to do the children's sermon when she's gone? And I go, not me. But instead of being frozen that we can't be like director Heidi, what if we look less at what we can offer and more at whose hands we are placing our gifts What if you offer to God what you think is insignificant in the church in the small ways and say, God, use this in your hands to do what you will? Recently, I visited Deaconess Jenny, Kim's journey group, and she started sharing about how the pandemic caused her to slow down. She drove the shuttle weekly when we had shuttles and everyone was taking them. And she said it was so hard to organize the volunteers and have people sign up, but she faithfully served our church weekly because someone needed to drive the van. And when the church closed, she actually had time to slow down and God started placing in her heart this desire to reach out and to love the community well. And so she began to dream and believe about a local elementary school London Town, which is a Title I school. So every month, we purchase and put together groceries for the families of the school. And so she began to share about a young man who really encouraged her. She said, when we started this thing, we didn't know who was going to serve, who was going to do what. And she talked about how encouraging it was to see this young man step up and start leading our church and how he organized it and showed so much leadership and charisma at such a young age as he served the most vulnerable and needy among us. And she said his name, Philip M. I don't know if you remember, Or maybe it was before you arrived at CCPC. But for about a year, we had a third service called the evening service. We tried to hype it up. It was dark. The music was loud. You know, and we tried to keep it going. It began with a bang of hundreds of people. But by the time it closed, it lost steam. We burnt out most of our leaders who volunteered. And everybody was discouraged because we felt like, man, We don't have much to show after pouring every single week into this thing. During the services, a young man who had walked away from the church for a very long time asked to meet with me uh, for breakfast, and we would have several more breakfasts after that. Much like the young boy in this miracle, I'd watch him say again and again, I've walked away from God. How much could God use a person like me again and again? During those meetings, God whispered in my heart and said, take him into your discipleship group. And I was like, no. (laughs) He just started his journey back into faith. I don't know him too well. Uh, How's he going to lead a journey group afterwards? But I trusted in the leading of the Holy Spirit, and I spoke to him and said, you know what? He is steadfast. He is hungry. And I asked him to join the group. Through our weekly discipleship meetings with the other guys, four other guys, he would share how he was struggling all the time, struggling with this discipleship, tr- struggling to show up, struggling with loving people, struggling with coworkers. He would share, and yet he would share the gospel with his friends and bring them to church and share the gospel with his coworkers. He would share and walk through the life issue booklet with his then girlfriend who was a non-believer born in a Muslim family. And I watched him rejoice as she became a believer and she was baptized at Christ Central and became a member of our church. I watched the same young man who doubted himself take up the task of coming alongside all of these leaders and pastors and deacons to lead the London Town Lunches. I have seen him wrestle daily with the realities of what he can offer God and he says it to us on a daily. Is this enough? And yet he shows up every day and asks God, will you take what I can offer? I've seen his family change. I've seen his friends change. I've seen our journey group change. My heart changed and the whole church changed because he kept offering his five loaves and two fish to the one who can do more with it than he could. This is the sobering reality. What you and I have to offer God isn't enough for the kingdom. But the action of our trust is to give to him what we can and leave the results to him. Lastly, the call is to believe in Christ. They ate and they were all satisfied. You know, what we see in the outcome is a clear unbalance of giving and receiving. The only person who gave was this poor boy that no one knows the name of. We will never know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, what's his name? because no one cared on earth but heaven cares heaven rejoices out of twenty thousand people everyone else was looking out for their own family their needs or bad about that it's good it's godly to take care of what god has placed in your care but it was this boy who responded with childlike faith but who benefited it was everyone But the miracle concludes with the abundant and complete filling of every single person who didn't contribute a thing. Nobody left not full and overly abundantly filled. Their unasked-for representative was a boy with no name, unknown to them from a town that they didn't know or care about. His sacrifice is one of the two events recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels. The miracle so grand, so powerful that it would be used when people brought up the name of Jesus. Do you know about this, Jesus? Yeah, I heard he fed 20,000 people with five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish. No one goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Where did those five pieces of bread and two fish came, come from? They just go, wow, Jesus did that. The unknown and the insignificant gave what seemed in the eyes of the world utterly foolishness to a problem that is far too great to make any kind of impact. You know, there was an insignificant rabbi born in a small town who only really taught for three years, and he led and invested most of his time in a ragtag group of 12 who were uneducated and common men. He died as a criminal on the cross. He was rejected and alone, and even the clothes on his back he had to give to selfish men who wanted to play for a game to take it from him. The powerful men of the world thought they could do whatever with him, reject him, kill him at their whim. And who would believe such an insignificant death to an insignificant man meant anything? But in the hands of God, what was so little would change the world. He literally did. We could say this is the only truly meaningful change that happened in the world. This is a picture of Christ, this little boy. Pointed to christ who would also offer up that which in the eyes world would never tackle the sins and the brokenness of this world but isn't this the cure isn't this the vaccine that would change a pandemic of sin in our hearts and lives this is the only true meaningful sacrifice Many commentators here point that the 12 baskets left over and overflowing is matching the 12 tribes and how God was faithful to sustain Israel throughout all of their unfaithfulness, all of their doubt, all of their exhaustion of living in this world that's broken. And God was and still remains faithful to this Israel and which we are now part This day, this miracle was pointing to Christ himself who would be broken. When we partake in communion today, you and I have to know that this is the single sacrifice that we dismissed and overlooked when we were enemies of God, just like we overlooked the boys' sacrificial offering and just like the boys offering this one single insignificant sacrifice that we could dismiss in any day, would be that sacrifice that changed the world. Through his broken body, you and I have meaning, we have life, and we have purpose. So Jesus is the greatest provision of God's faithfulness for his people, for he truly alone is the bread of life. John 6, 33, 35 says this, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm going to get real here. The humbling truth is that you and I look everywhere else to find satisfaction in this life. Even after attending church and serving most of our lives, we still look everywhere else. To find satisfaction, we look at our jobs, our performance, how successful we are, what we look like in the eyes of the people who look, our popularity, our money, our financial security, our marriage. We even look at the success of our children for our security and our worth. We literally look everywhere else for our bread of life. We want His presence more than His presence. We would rather have physical bread for a day than the bread of life for eternity. So I want to make an invitation to all of you who have been searching so long, looking everywhere else to find life. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the true bread of life, and if you have any questions about that faith, would you email that email address, and would you text us? Jesus is our bread of life, and he was broken so that you and I can have life abundant even though we dismissed that sacrifice and offering. When he returns, and he will, because he promised it, there will be no more death, There will be no more cancer. There will be no hate. And there will no longer be sin. And there will no longer be hunger. Because he will satisfy us deeply. And that no one can take away. Let's pray. Dear God, we place our worth, our joy, our satisfaction, our being in your hands. We're tired of chasing all the things that are created by you, hoping that it will satisfy, only to be left exhausted. Even the good things of serving and loving our family. Would you become the bread of life for our church? In Jesus' name, amen.